Well, thank you all for, for coming and being here. And um, we will be uh, passing out uh, free $100 gift certificates to all of you who are in Bible class. Um, or at least um, it's credit in heaven, as they say. The, um, I just want to share with you just very briefly... Um, you never know who it is that is going to um, be coming to your worship service, and you don't always know the story. A gentleman was leaving after church. He was the very last one out. And I asked him, you know, where he came from, and he came from a place called Valentine in Nebraska, which um, I knew because of the fact that I drove across Nebraska so many doggone times that I don't want to see Nebraska again um, and in the middle of snowstorms and everything else, but this, uh, Valentine is out in the sand hills, but he, um, he told me that uh, he had actually been attending a Baptist seminary and uh, that he listened to a program uh, uh, on the uh, internet called Lutheran Satire, which um, my son Hans did. And this uh, awakened in him uh, some things that he had not known before, and he went back to his scriptures, and he started listening to issues, etc. And he came to realize that uh, his Baptist beliefs were not as biblically pure as he thought they were. And so uh, as he began his, his process of growth, he left his, um, his uh, studies uh, at this Baptist seminary, and, um, and now uh, they came back here, I guess, to have a meeting with his father-in-law, parents-in-law, and his parents-in-law. His father's a pastor, as he said, of a megachurch, and they have basically now disowned him because they believe that he is a heretic who has now joined a cult. And, um, and as, he, uh, as he stood there and confessed his faith in this wonderful gift of God and grace that comes through the waters of baptism, he talked about uh, how he was so looking forward to being confirmed, to baptizing his children now, and to receiving the Lord's Supper. And he did so with tears as he recounted the story of the great sacrifice that was being made. He said he was very proud of his wife because even though this has become extremely hard on her, her comment to him was, we have to do this. That means that it is to say to be disowned by our family. We have to do this because as much as I don't want to, this is what it is that the Bible says. And so um, with that, he told me that he'd maybe be back at least one time a year to see his own family. But in the meantime, um, the most important and the greatest and the highest gift that he could imagine for himself and for his family was to be able to know and understand this free forgiveness of the gospel, but also through a means of grace and through the gift of grace. So um, it touches a little bit upon um, our study for today. And I would like, like it if you might, we might join together in prayer. I'd ask you to maybe um, join me in the prayer 
for this Trinity Sunday. You, you all have the handout lessons, right, that came with your bulletins. There's a prayer at the very bottom. If you would join me together. We know that it is quite useless, <laughs> Heavenly Father, to play the role of a hypocrite because you can always look into our hearts and judge us accordingly. Purify our hearts from all base motives that the services we render you may truly please you and benefit our neighbor. For Christ's sake, amen. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to take up this story of the, uh, <coughs> from 9 through 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke 19, 18. Excuse me. Um, okay. Um, 18, 9, 9 through 14. Okay. Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm just going to go ahead <coughs> and read it. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. All right. I'm going to read that first paragraph. You have already heard that before any man can do what is good and pleasing in God's sight, he must already be a pious man. That is, he must be accounted as justified and righteous before God by faith in Christ. At all times, it remains universally true that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and contrary wise, that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. If a man is to do what is good, he must be good beforehand. So also here, the tax collector beats his breast, and this act may be regarded as a mark of faith he already had in his heart. Now that text, it isn't just that God would be merciful, but that God would be propitiated. He is actually making, he is connecting the blood that was, had been put upon the altar, if you remember how it is that the high priest would go in and make atonement for, his, for, for the sins of the people once a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And that because of what that high priest was doing for the people, their sins, God, had, God would remit or pardon their sins. And of course, if anybody reads the book of Hebrews, you come to realize that all of this was like a play, if you will, that was intended to point out what it is that Christ was going to do for us. 
Christ was going to enter into, not a temple made with hands, but he's going to enter into the holy place where he was going to offer up his own blood as a sacrifice, a propitiation. He was going to turn away God's anger towards mankind for our sins, because of our sins. And so this tax collector, this publican, this individual who was considered to be the absolute slime of society because of his role and involvement. I mean, the tax collectors were, it it wasn't just that they were collecting taxes, not like working for the IRS, right? It was that a tax collector acted on behalf of the Romans. So you were kind of taking money from God's people and giving it to these ungodly Romans in addition to creaming off some of that for yourself. And they taxed, back in those days, they taxed not on the basis of your income, heaven forbid, your income, they taxed on the basis of your assets. So if you had a nice big ranch, if you had a lot of money, and you had big houses, they would tax you on the basis of what you owned, not on the basis of what you earned. So you are basically paying taxes on your wealth every single year. They were not popular. I can tell you that. Now, they also probably had to hang out with each other because, you know, when you're kind of the slime of society, you look, look for the rest of the slime to hang out with. And so they were, you know, they were the, the lowlifes, if you will. They were the ones probably that were hanging out with those prostitutes or maybe those people who drank a lot. And so the society, I saw this up in northern Minnesota, society has a tendency where there are these kinds of excesses to, to divide between the righteous who go to church and between the unrighteous who are down at the bar on Sunday morning. Between the people who are giving of themselves for the church and those who are giving who are living for themselves in the society at large. And, of course, you can begin to see how easy it was for those who were the so-called righteous ones to look upon these slime of society and say to themselves, thank goodness I'm not like them. Now, the question here is, question behind the question is am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? Do I I ever question whether or not I'm really a Christian? What would tell me that I am a Christian? Or what would tell me that you are a Christian? Well, is it because I'm a member of this Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, conservative Orthodox Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation? Is it, is it because of the fact that I simply claim that I am a Christian, that, you, that that means I am a Christian? Is it because I've lived a pretty nice life? I mean, you know, I haven't beaten anybody lately. <laughs> Went down to the, to the street dance yesterday at, in Zionsville, and um, I didn't punch a single person on the streets. In fact, I greeted people, and they thought I was a nice guy. 
Good to see that you're retiring. Congratulations. Get lost. <laughs> well, you see, all of us probably go through our life and we wonder whether or not we indeed are Christians. And then, of course, if we're wondering what we are, whether or not we are Christians, we actually find ourselves sometimes even looking at other people and then making judgments about whether or not they are. Well, then you look at this tax collector and you say, how could that guy be a Christian? How could that guy be, uh, Jesus uses the word justified, that, is, that, is, that God literally, truly forgave him his sins and that he was pardoned for all the sins that he had done. How, how well, there are a couple of things, I suppose. Luther says, he beat his chest. Have you ever been so disgusted with yourself that you beat your own chest and said, <clears throat> why did I do that? Why? How bad I am. What a worthless piece of garbage I am. And yet you kind of hear the words of the Apostle Paul, don't you? Where he said that he was the chief of sinners. Can we look at ourselves and say to ourselves, I have no righteousness of my own. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And here was a man who knew that there was no way he could in any way bring his life before God and claim to be the person that God demanded him to be. And so he had the only one option to throw himself upon the mercy of God promised to him in that atoning blood upon that altar. So now you have two things. You have the altar. In other words, you have what we might call the sacrament, the sign, the sacrament, the mark, and you have the faith of this person. The church is to be found, Christians are to be found, where you have the sign, the sacrament, the mark, it's called the mark of the church, and you have faith. Now, the problem with Pharisees, and we have to apply this to ourselves, the problem with the Pharisees is that he was looking to his own actions, deeds, and so-called piety. And he saw in his piety, I give a tenth of everything that I have. He saw in that the so-called proof that he was God's child. And then because he looked to himself, not to God's mercy, but to himself, he looked down on those who were not as pious. Just a you know that little handout that we gave out to you? Let me have a look at this relative to the subject of what we might call the marks of the church. Okay, I would... No, no, the marks of the church. Um, uh, I suppose someday I'll get it. This uh, George H. Tavard, who was uh, actually a brilliant, brilliant uh, writer found this book as I was going through my library the other day from the 
Augustinians of the Assumption, whatever that means, but at least the Augustinians were, in Luther's tradition, were always very theological. He writes this, Modern ecumenicism, uh, ecumenism is a common search after Christian unity by churches that do not know or that misunderstand the Catholic unity of the Church of Rome and its historical continuity with the Church of the Middle Ages, the Fathers, and the Apostles. There is only one great church, as the Fathers said. It is to be known from its communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. In other words, you can know that you have a pretty doggone good chance of being able to make it into heaven. What's the mark of the church? The mark of the church is not that altar of blood. It's not Christ who avails for you before the throne of God. It is that you are in a human institution that has some sort of historic so-called continuity. In other words, supposedly Peter appointed the first pope who appointed the next pope, who appointed the next pope, who appointed the next pope. This organization of popes and priests and cardinals and bishops, this organization, if you are attached to it, that's where it is that you can find the comfort of your salvation. But, let's take that away. You're a member of this body which gives you a fighting chance but what do you now have to add to it you have to add your own good works and if you don't have enough of them then you go to purgatory and there you can spend you know a couple of thousand years while your relatives are slaving away buying indulgences down here or doing good works, or the treasury of merit, however that might be. But you don't even know whether or not you can make it to heaven. Doesn't that sound comforting? Why in the world do, are there so many people that find, I guess you might say, comfort in this? The marks of the church. The mark of the church, we always, and this is, this is going to be, maybe what I should do is jump down here to the quote of Robert Price. This is Sove's dad, who wrote a book called Getting Into the Theology of Concord, uh, Study of the Book of Concord. Really, he told me that he really wanted to uh, name this book what it means to be a Lutheran, but um, he, it was for a series but, but it really does tell us that, something about this. Thank God, Luther says, a seven-year-old child knows what a church is. Namely, holy believers in sheep who hear the voice of the shepherd. Okay, the mark of the church is the voice of the shepherd, right? Oh, may, that was how that hymn go. Oh, may we are all here when our shepherd doth call with accents persuasive and tender. When we hear that shepherd speaking to us, where is he speaking? In this proclamation of the gospel, in those sacraments that are inviting us to the forgiveness of sins. So he says, 
Where is the church? A seven-year-old knows this. Luther discovered wherein the real holiness of the church consisted, not in, quote, surpluses, tonsures, albs, and other ceremonies of theirs, that is the papists, which they have invented over and above the scripture, but it consists of the word of God and true faith. Now, I see, Rome prescribed uh, what they were to wear. Rome prescribed, you know, the, the, how they were to consecrate their robes and all those kinds of things. So, in other words, they came along and they basically were making the outward things of the Roman Catholic Church into marks. So, if I came in and my priest was wearing the right kinds of robes, if he was, he was tonsured, if he was had gone through ceremonies, then I supposedly would know that I was receiving the forgiveness of sins. Does a priest gain forgiveness of sins? On the one hand, we would say, when you reach for the forgiveness that Christ gave to the church, and you give it to the people, yeah, I could probably say that this priest, this pastor, was giving you the forgiveness. When I say, in the name and instead of Christ, and by his command and authority, I forgive you all your sins, I'm just the vehicle through which it's being given to you. But it's the voice of the shepherd that is actually doing it. If you say, no, if Pastor Feeney had not been wearing a stole, we would, have not, not, would not have gotten forgiveness, then the power is in the stole, right? If Pastor Feeney hadn't been wearing a white robe, if it had been gray, we would not be forgiven. Then the power is in the robe. You see what Luther is, what, what he's driving at here? That they, when you make the mark of the church out to be a human, visible organization, then everything associated with that visible organization becomes for you supposedly the very thing that you could look to for your forgiveness. He goes on. But it consists in the word of God and uh, true faith. Melanchthon, seven years before Luther, had defined the church in his, in his usual, more precise manner. He's a, Melanchthon was kind of a systematic person. Luther was just a gunslinger who was, you know, pulling his gun on everybody. So sometimes Melanchthon is a little bit more precise. Our churches also teach that the one holy church is to endure forever. The church is the assembly of saints in which, see it with me, the gospel is taught purely and the sacraments are administered rightly. He adds a little to Luther's definition when he says not only <coughs> who constitutes the church, namely all saints or believers, but speaks further of the marks of the church, the signs which indicate where it may be found. This was necessary, for if the church consists of all believers, and no one can look into the heart of another, uh, look into another's heart and see his faith. Only God can do that. How can we know where the church is? So, okay. Or maybe we might, we might add to this. Um, when we look at the story of the publican and the tax collector, the Pharisee and tax collector, obviously what Jesus is doing is he's telling us what's going on in the hearts of these people, right? Because even that Pharisee is probably saying what he is saying in his prayers as he stands there like this. He's thinking, probably, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. 
You know, that's not exactly the kind of thing that you would say if you were praying in church, right? We thank you, Lord, that we're not like other people. You, know, you don't say that because that sounds proud, proudful, prideful. It's been inside here. The other guy is beating his chest and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know that he's not saying that at the top of his lungs either. So the question is, does God see the heart? Yes, he does. Is it always apparent? Is the church made up of both believers and unbelievers? And is a hypocrite a person that actually pretends to be a believer but is not? And this is kind of terrifying to us, isn't it? Because all of us go through times of maybe struggle or doubt. You guys do that? Ever sit back sometimes and just go, what? A resurrection of the body? Eternal life in the presence of God? A Jew who died 2,000 years ago is the Son of God who has now been raised from the dead and he gives divine forgiveness from the one who has actually created the universe and he is the incarnation of the fullness of the deity. And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats and they're coming to take me away. You just, are we crazy? And you sometimes say, this is true. But Paul kind of puts it in an interesting way. He says, that God took what is foolishness to the world and he made it into the wisdom of God. Why? So that when we come to call it, see it as the wisdom that brings about our salvation, we realize that it is God who has worked this faith in us. That it is not through human reason, through human effort, through human decision that I became a Christian. God did it. You know, like that story of the king's clothes, you know, where the king has uh, been told that he has all these marvelous clothes, but it's actually the uh, only, only good people can see it or only righteous people or only people with taste or something like that. And so he's walking in around in his underwear and everybody's going, oh, beautiful clothes, beautiful clothes, because they think they... And only the kid is honest enough to be able to say, he's naked or he's, he's walking around in his underwear. Well, the king's clothes, uh, God in his infinite wisdom turns the wisdom of the world upside down and he has actually chosen to redeem the world through this humble, lowly Jew who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And when we as Christians are coming to that Lord's table and we're eating and drinking of the body and the blood of Christ and you go, that's not logical. Well, you tell me whether or not it's logical that some Jew who died 2,000 years ago and came back from the dead is the source of eternal life and salvation. It's all beyond our reason and sense. So God sets up these marks, these signs, so that when we're drawn to them and we find our comfort in them, we then come to also know and understand that this is for us our comfort in our salvation. So, we look outside of ourselves, but it's when we turn around and we look to ourselves, inside of ourselves, that we become hypocrites. Because the minute we say, 
It's our doing, our gifts, our righteousness, our holiness, how good we are that we are looking away from that blood upon the altar and we start looking here to this person. Remember the, the um, camp song that I taught you guys in confirmation? I like myself. I think I'm grand. I go to the show just to hold my hand. I put my arms around my waist and when I get fresh, I slap my face. I like myself, I think I'm grand. That's the prayer of the Pharisee. And when we look to ourselves, oh, it's so tempting. It's so tempting to look into that mirror of the law and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is that? Oh, you're so good at liturgical responses. <laughs> who is the fairest of them all, right? And the minute that you do that, there's always somebody who is fairer, which is the reason why you want to kill Snow White, right? Was it is Snow White? No, oh, okay. Not Sleeping Beauty. Snow White. Oh, I got to get my theology straight here. Okay. <laughs> you got to get. Oh well, uh, you heard the you heard the story about it was. You remember that tumbleweeds? That 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 cartoon. I, I forget when I was first came to the, the seminary in Springfield. I came down and there. It was in the, on Sunday morning, and it was uh, Easter time. And, uh, and so in comes this uh, cowboy on this swayback horse. And um, he says to his, to his buddy, um, well, when the Santa Claus going to come? It's Easter. When Santa Claus going to come? And he goes, you dummy. Don't you know that the Easter bunny comes at Easter and Santa Claus comes at Christmas? He says, Gad, that boy's grasp of theology is terrible. Well, anyway, <laughs> diversions here. Um, we, when we look to ourselves, it's tempting because it builds our pride, but it is the devil's trap because we are never righteous enough to ever satisfy our conscience and we are never able to arrive at a point where we could actually have faith in God's goodness. Yeah, if it all depends on me. You know, I, I say, I liken it unto, you know, we, my wife every once in a while takes me to the swimming pool. Do you guys have a pool? You have a pool in your house? At your house. I haven't been there yet. <laughs> when, I, when I do, I'll come. Um, you know, you get into the swimming pool, and, and I go about a half a lap, and I'm gasping for air. I just, I don't know how, what it is that you guys can do. I just can't do it. But imagine somebody who gets into the pool and sw swims maybe five laps, and then they think that they can go across the Atlantic Ocean. That's what we do with our righteousness. We think, I can pray, I can give, I can do, I can do. I, I, I've got all this holiness, this perfection. I've got, I, I don't sin at least outwardly in the commandments. And now look at what it is that God really wants of you, and that's the Atlantic Ocean. So what we do is we have to back up and we have to ask ourselves, if I'm a Christian, where do I look for my comfort? And you look not inside, you look outside to the marks. But when you do, there are things that begin to happen. One of them 
is this. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. There's a, the great mystery of life is that the more that we come to grasp God's grace, the more we come to realize how unworthy we are of his grace. So that never does faith in God's grace ever create pride. It always creates deep humility. And it's out of that spirit of deep humility that we come to actually do the closest that we can do what we might call good works. Good works we do for the welfare of our neighbor, for the good of our neighbor, and out of love for God. And it is gratitude and humility and love that all flows out of that faith. Let's, um, let's look at what uh, Dr. Price said. He goes on to say, and that, was what an, and that was an important question in those days when Roman Catholics were saying, we are the church, and enthusiasts and Anabaptists and others were saying, we are the church. Later, the Calvinists added a third mark of the church, namely external discipline in the church. This was quite contrary to the Lutheran position, for the children of the world can maintain outward discipline to some degree. Remember so the Scarlet Letter? Book, The Scarlet Letter? This is the Calvinist world where the way that you showed that you were the church is by the way that you got rid of all those bad sinners that were actually in your church. So you went after them and you reformed them or you kicked them out. If they did. What do you do with this tax collector? Now, this is it's a little deeper, the discussion on that, but Roughly speaking, they added a third mark to the church. Frankly, he says, I believe that such an innovation by the Calvinists on this point marks the beginning of some of the real evils of later pietism among both Calvinists and Lutherans. For this new mark, which can be construed in so many divergent ways, tends to make Christians pharisaical and to deprive them of the comfort of an unconditioned gospel. The Lutheran doctrine of the church is wonderfully comforting. It agrees perfectly with the doctrine that a sinner is saved and justified by grace alone without works. And it agrees with the doctrine that the Spirit of God alone works faith in our hearts and keeps us in Christ's church. Um, let's go back, if you, it's okay, go back to the second paragraph of our devotion on the Sunday lesson, if you could. If you would read with me, without, I'll read together the second paragraph. This took place and was recorded so that we should really open our eyes and not judge people merely by outward appearances. We must try to discover what was in the heart of these two men and not simply form a judgment according to works. If the heart is godly, all is godly. If this tax collector is judged by works, you soon come to a false conclusion. It appears that in him there is nothing but sin. Likewise, when I judge the hypocritical Pharisee according to works, 
I also finish up with a wrong conclusion. He stands in the holy place, makes a fine prayer, praises and thanks God with impressive works, fasts, gives tithes, and harms none. No one. Everything about this man glitters. His standards find universal approval. I like that. He glitters. He glitters. It is not easy to reject the testimony of such an honorable, virtuous life. Who would venture to assert that fasting is not good, that praising God and rendering to every man his due is something evil? When I look at a priest, monk, or nun, I regard them as godly. Who can gainsay me? But if I am to determine that this man is evil and that man godly, I must look into their hearts, and this I cannot do. So, you know, strangely, I find it's, it's kind of interesting that up in the top up here, the first paragraph, Luther says, this act may be regarded as a mark of faith, but he says we can't look into the heart. So the way that we are to judge both ourselves and also our neighbors, it's a whole lot easier if we remember that faith and that forgiveness is what renders us justified and pardoned before God. Thank goodness for that thief on the cross. Right? For that man who deserved and admitted to deserve his just punishment. And yet, at the last minute, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. There wasn't a single good work that that man did. Yeah, and yet the so-called righteous Pharisees and the leaders of the people with all their so-called outward deeds of holiness stood at the foot of the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down from here and we'll believe in you. Mock, mock, mock. heads, turn them upside down because the way that God's righteousness works his salvation, when we get to heaven we are going to be amazed about two things about all those bad people that are there <laughs> and the second thing is that we're there yeah, that's a gift of God's grace so uh, with that in mind um, why don't we take the last the prayer on the following page and we'll pray that together too. Monday. Together it begins with thanks. Thanks and praise be to you, Heavenly Father, for the precious gift of your word. Grant that we may always accept your word with our whole heart so that it always proves itself a powerful influence in our lives fully sanctifying us for Christ the Savior's sake. Amen. Sorry, there was a little, it got cut off there a little bit. And you got to read between the lines. Okay, well, uh, we want to thank George Tavard and Robert Preuss and Martin Luther for our wonderful devotion today. Just a, an encouragement to take this home and maybe even tomorrow to read through these devotions as well. I think we all find a, find a good devotion book 
a good thing to render to our children is the, the practice and the discipline of doing devotions on a daily basis. It's always very salutary. All right, and if you, um, if you can't do devotions, at least you can turn on Lutheran satire and um, get, a, get a good one. Lord, bless you and keep you. And thank you all for your very kind comments. Um, uh, thank you all for, um, for your, your comforting words and for all the wonderful things that you say. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be a, an interesting journey between now and next May. And uh, thank you for walking that path with me. And uh, we're going to try to do all that we can to make sure that the congregation is in good hands with a new and future pastor. Lord be with you all. Amen.